Welcome to the 39th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode that highlighted the wicked lifestyle of the corrupt and decadent Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker. Our show is often horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But we must warn you, sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Do you want to learn more about us? Well, you can visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends. The more the merrier. Cindy, how's it going this week? Oh, pretty good. Yeah? I said pretty good. I'm doing well. You're How doing you? well today. Yes. yes. I'm doing okay. I'm just uh, trying to get back in the groove of things. I was out of town and came home and my house was disgusting, you know, like a bachelor pad. So I've been trying to get that back in order, you know, but yeah, um, yeah. I went to Durham over mm. for five days. Were you gone for five days? I was. And I will tell you that you have to wear your masks. That's a governor. I mean, in all of North Carolina, it's it's a governor the mandate state. the whole state. And a lot of things are still kind of shut down, unlike, you know, Florida, where we live. Mm-hmm. But where nothing is yeah, shut down. Right. And um, yeah, I was there because my son had a corneal transplant. God, that just seems so painful. But you've told me that yeah, they I said mean, there's he, no pain associated well, with he's, it. Well, he's in a little bit of pain. So hopefully that will ease up. Yeah. And he's still, you know, still a little blurry. But hopefully. Well, everyone's different. Yeah. So. And it takes time to heal. So hopefully that will, um, that will help. That will start healing soon. All right. All right. Nice. Well, yeah. I, uh, we're twins today. Yes, we are. So, so Cindy got us shirts. This is all the crime, drink and wine, bed by nine, which maybe bed by nine a.m. <laughs> right, <Nine>. like <laughs> That's a, yeah. So no one, yeah. when I had my meeting uh, today, no one said anything about it. Yeah, well, so, you know, that's probably because jealous, they, right? And they probably all saw me drop my coffee in the parking lot, and they were like, "Oh, we might not want to say anything to her." Right? Yeah. <laughs> Except for Skipper, he was like, "Ha ha ha ha." <laughs> Oh, you didn't get your coffee. But you made Um, me some. Oh, yeah. So um, our girl, Rachel, she emailed us. No, she Facebooked us us to let us know that the Iceman um, that we did in episode, I think, uh, episode 36. 36. Yes. He's actually, today is the day of his execution. The 15th. The 17th. the 17th so tomorrow. tomorrow oh that's tomorrow when this comes when out, this comes out okay yeah. yes he will be dead so i'm not sure how i feel about that i mean i know that he um he killed people but yeah i, yeah. I don't know how i feel i mean i'm not gonna celebrate his death mm, meh. you know yeah um but that's 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 happening it is happening yeah. and i know i read the other day like the first federal execution took place in like so many years yes, it took place yes. like yesterday or the mm-hmm. day before mm-hmm. and they were like all right this week i think there were three on the chopping block i guess they're clearing them out for covid <laughs> <laughs> i guess all right oh. so um anything else um no i don't think so 
Okay. Well, this week, um, hmm, I stumbled across this one, but apparently I'm a little late to the game because this one, Dr. Phil had one of the main players on his show in like 2014. Oh, really? Yeah. And then there was also um, an Evil Lives Here episode. So okay. I, I never heard of it. You know, I'm sure. Dr. Um, Phil probably gave him hell. Yeah, I don't know if he, I don't know if he would have given him hell or if he would have been sympathetic. Oh, really? So I'm not really oh, sure, okay. but you're going to, this one's intriguing to me because okay. my mind kept changing between who's telling the truth. Oh, yeah. That's when you know it's a, like, right. A like, one. I don't know. Like, to me, there was reasonable doubt. Oh. And this one's trial heavy. So oh, okay. I'll be going over a lot of trial information. Um, what I do know is I'm not sure if, if the main player, if he was telling the truth or not, but what I do know is that he did suffer some childhood trauma. Mm. Yeah. So here we go. Are you oh. ready? Yes. I did a four hour Zoom call on trauma today. Oh, yes. Yay. Yes. All right. So. Well, yeah. Well, you know what? Our children are traumatized. Yes. It has to be done. It's an awful world. Let's begin on November 3rd, 2003. On that afternoon, Defiance County Sheriff deputies, along with emergency personnel, responded to a frantic 911 call in Mark Center, Ohio. The caller was a hysterical 10-year-old boy named mm -hmm. Corey Lee Brininger. And I have no idea if I'm saying his name correctly, but I'm probably going to say Brininger the whole time. Okay. Now, between sobs... I'm not correct you. <laughs> <laughs> between sobs, he managed to tell dispatch that his 34-year-old dad had been accidentally shot in the head. Holy crap. Right? Dispatch instructed the boy to perform CPR on the victim until help arrived, and the young boy, while he was on the phone with 911, was compressing his father's chest, blowing into his mouth <gasps> as instructed. When Sergeant Vandemark arrived at the home, there were no vehicles in the driveway, and the front door was locked. So he knocked on the door, and when Corey opened it, he was an emotional mess. He tried leading Vandemark to the back of the house, but Vandemark stopped him and entered the bedroom by the door, where he saw Robert Brininger lying on a twin bed. Upon seeing him, Vandemark instantly knew that Robert was dead. Vandemark led the devastated child to the porch, so he took the kid outside, and, you know, he had Corey on his lap. He was, you know, comforting him the mm -hmm. best he could. The kid's sobbing. Oh, golly. Yeah. It might seem odd that a 10-year-old boy would sit on a grown man's, uh, especially a sheriff's lap, but they already knew each other, and they had already had a relationship in oh, some fashion since 2000. And I'll get into that oh. later. So he just scooped him up and was holding, you know, right. consoling him. Yes. Not like in a weirdo way. But no. As a, right. I as a believe. father to a child or. Yeah. You know, yes. Because this kid supposedly was, I mean, he was, I mean, devastated. I can imagine so. I can't imagine if one of my boys at 15 and 13 found their dad like right. that. You know, yes. I mean. Between sobs. Corey told Vandemark that he had taken some pamphlets into the bedroom for his dad to read. And Robert was in the bed reading while Corey was standing by the door playing with the gun when it accidentally went off, hitting his father in the head. So not only is his dad dead, but he accidentally shot his dad. So he, they... Why, okay, I have questions. Okay. Why was a 10-year-old playing with a gun? So he and his dad were talking. I'm going to tell you about that in a okay, minute. Okay, yes. okay. I'll wait. Okay. I'll wait. Okay. All right. Any other questions? No. Okay. All right. So while they're sitting on the porch, another deputy arrives. Deputy Fa Fackler arrived. Fackler. <laughs> <laughs> 
he noted that Corey and Vandermark were on the porch. He went inside to secure the scene and he had his cameras taking pictures. Fackler saw Robert lying in a twin bed with blood around his head. Robert had earplugs in both ears. Fackler then noted that the stippling from the gunpowder indicated a close-range shot, like within inches. So it wasn't a shot from several feet away by the by the door, the bedroom door. Oh, okay. So e- earplugs as in, like, the kind that, not like earbuds. Not earbuds where you can listen, but, like, noise-reducing no- earplugs. Yeah. Okay. Like, I'm picturing, you know. Like the kind you just, yeah, little rubbery Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that you can't hear anything while you're trying mm-hmm. to sleep. Okay. Or while you're working on. Like they give you on an big, airplane. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right, so he also saw pamphlets about guns that were lying on the bed, including one that was under the arm of the victim. The gun was lying on the floor on the other side of the bed from the injury to Robert's head. When EMTs arrived, Corey went to the ambulance with EMT Michelle Potter, while all the others went inside the house with Vandemark. Now, Michelle Potter tried to comfort Corey by holding him and hugging him, but he was still hysterical. She noted that he did not have any blood on him, and she did not have any blood on her after hugging him. Now, this seemed odd to her because dispatch said that the boy was performing CPR on his dad, and you would think that there would be blood on him. And if he shot him from, I mean, whether close range, if if the gunshot appeared to be within just a few inches, then he would have blood on him. Right. I would think. Well, you would think, yes. She asked Corey to be sure, did you do CPR on your dad? And he said, yes, he did perform CPR as, as instructed, is what he told her. Now, back inside the house, the first responders are confused. You look very confused yourself. Yes, I, I'm a little confused. But you're not alone because officers and the EMT personnel were also confused. Because it seems like, because you said you mentioned that not only was he doing the compressions, but that he was doing the mouth to mouth. And if you got shot in the head, I would think that there would be blood on your face or your, I mean, I don't know. I've never seen a gunshot victim, so in real life so i don't know but it just seems like there would be blood everywhere right now the boy said that he and his father were discussing the gun as the father read the pamphlets because there were pamphlets lying around the body but the victim was in a sleeping position he wasn't in a position to be interacting with the pamphlets and conversing about the gun i'm trying to like picture what kind of position he might have been in um kind of like partially maybe on his stomach is what i'm guessing like he wasn't sitting up or he wasn't lying on a side where he could interact. He was kind right. of like almost on his stomach is what okay. I'm guessing. So like the prone position, is that like on the side? I have no idea. I think maybe like a fetal position, you know? Like yeah, that's possibly like, yeah. or even almost, yeah. Or it could have been on his stomach. I'm not sure. It didn't quite say what they did say. You didn't look is for a, pictures? Are you kidding? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Robert was wearing, like I said, earplugs. So how could he have a conversation with a son with the earplugs in? How could they be discussing things? Yeah. In addition, the wound looked like it had been fired from a close range, not from across the room, as Corey had stated. And if Corey performed CPR on his dad, why didn't he have any blood on his skin or clothing? They were puzzled by Corey's version of events because the scene did not match a story. Now, perhaps they thought he's just shaken up and he wasn't remembering the details correctly. I mean, he's 10 years old. He's super hysterical. He's sobbing. He's saying that he felt like it's all his fault that the gun accidentally killed his father. And at that time, Vandemark believed what Corey told him because of how devastated Corey was at the scene. I mean, okay, so it's a 10-year-old boy. So I'm just trying to, you know, I'm thinking ahead. I just don't see how, because I don't, obviously, I don't know how this is played out. I haven't looked at any of your stuff. And you've never heard the story? You didn't watch Dr. Phil? Okay. No. Well, sometimes the stories sound familiar, and then I'm like, I think I know this, and sometimes I don't. But And I'm like, did I watch an episode of that 
the evil lives next door, whatever. I'm like, did I watch that? Because, you know, I watch all that stuff, periodic, pure, whatever. Periodically. But to me, I'm like, okay, a 10-year-old boy, can he plot this to, like... Right. You know, and yeah. I'm like, trying to think, I'm like, thinking, I'm like, I mean, I guess there probably may be some 10-year-old boys that could, you know, plan this, like, little murder out in their head. I mean, I don't know, but not just the average... I mean, I would hope not just the average ten-year-old boy could come up with this. All right, so let's let's continue on. Oh, see she what wants happens, me to right? shut up. Well, <laughs> no, I don't want you to shut up at all. Well, it's because you're asking questions. All right, so because you're asking questions that I'm getting ready to answer. So oh, okay. you know, yeah, okay. All right, so a few minutes later, or I don't know how many, t- how much time later, but at some point. Corey's adopted mom, Judy, came home to a crime scene. So Robert, the father, had married a lady named Judy. And Judy ended up adopting her stepson. So I'm going to refer to her as like the adopted mom or the stepmom throughout. So it's the same person. Well, technically she's his mom. She's technically his mom. I mean, legally, yeah. Yes. So... If you want to just refer to her as mom, I don't know who you're talking about. Okay. Unless the other mom pops up. Um, no, I, I think I mentioned her very briefly, but I don't even really know who she is. All right. So Judy came in. Judy, the adopted mom, came in, came home. She found Corey in the ambulance with EMT Potter. Now, she goes to the ambulance and then Vandermark, Sergeant Vandermark, sees her and he heads towards the ambulance to hear, to meet her. And he hears her telling Corey, everything's going to be okay. She's trying to comfort him. Vandermark then quietly whispered in her ear that Robert was dead. At that point, she asked for permission to take Corey away from the scene. Now, Vandermark agreed that it might be best for Corey to be removed from the scene, but he just had a few questions first. Judith told him that her husband, Robert, worked night, so he slept during the day. On this particular day, he had gone to bed around noon wearing his earplugs. Judith told Vandermark that when she left to go to her mother's that afternoon, Robert was awake in bed. She left about the time the kids got off the school bus and she was going to her mom. So she took the two younger kids and Corey supposedly didn't want to go. So okay. he stayed home. She also told Vandermark that Robert and Corey were planning to go on a, um, to go hunting soon. So they had been working with the gun and talking about it the night before. Corey was still sobbing and emotional. So Vandermark let him leave with Judy. So they left. Vandermark believed Corey's statement, even though it didn't quite match the scene, and he figured the poor kid was too emotional to remember exactly what happened. No further investigation was done at the time, and the coroner pronounced the boy's father dead on the scene. Robert Brininger's death was ruled an accidental shooting. He had been killed by a gunshot wound to the back of the head. So it was an accidental shooting is what they ruled it as, despite the evidence. Let me just tell you a little bit about uh, what I know about Corey. So he... um, This story takes place in Defiance County, which is in northwestern Ohio, just on the Indiana state line. And Corey Lee Brininger spent his young life moving back and forth between Ohio and Indiana. He was born January 16, 1993. Now, like I said, I don't really know who his biological mom is, but since I'm not certain, so I'm not going to tell you who I think it is. But what I will tell you is that... I think that she might have been like Ashley Benson and worked in the sex trade at some point because mm. she had an email. She had a few different email addresses that I found and um, they were something like along the lines of love for you, XXS, XXX. Oh. And, um, you know, if you want an angel, XXX, oh, things Lord. like that. So I, she I, could have been a, a sex worker. I had someone email me one time. 
to a, to my professional yes. career email, and their email was hot titties fifty seven oh. at, at yahoo.com. Wow. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm like, really? You can't like. Well, maybe that's her professional They're email free. address. <laughs> I mean, who well, knows? then when I spoke to the woman on the phone, she sounded to be uh, um, nearing elderly. Oh, yeah. She probably just <laughs> smokes too much. Right. right. That could have been, you know, like a, I was just on the phone, but I was like, what? Right. Anyway, Corey's maternal grandmother said that she was unsure about what, tra- what trauma Corey may have experienced during his infant and toddler years because when he was with his biological mother, she really wasn't a part of his life. Now, at some point, Corey went to his father's, Robert Bryninger, and at that point, his father asked the maternal grandmother to take the boy in when he was four. What is known is that he frequently moved between his maternal grandmother, who lived in Indiana, and his father, who lived across the state line in Ohio. Okay. At some point, Robert Bryninger's wife, Judy, adopted Corey as her own. Now, according to Corey, she was not a good mother to him, but based on what I found in articles and court documents... This kid dealt with serious traumatic issues throughout his childhood. After his father's death, Corey continued to live with his adopted mom, Judy, and his half-siblings, Emily and Garrett, but he still would go back and forth between his maternal grandmother and Judy, who had gotten married to a guy named Gary Hockey. So she remarried. Okay. I need to point out that she also got life insurance after Robert Bryninger's death. It was about $350,000 is about what she brought... You know, headlines say, oh, $500,000, but it was about $333,000. Okay. Do they take tax out on that That stuff? was my, what I was going to ask. Well, like, that's what I was wondering. But like Maybe or, it was five hundred, and they took taxes. Yeah, but and that so, just seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know, but that literally. That if was you know the answer, email at us at a true crime podcast. At, com. No, <laughs> no, at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Oh, but you I can also it. contact us through our our website we have a contact mm-hmm. form there too. we do yeah. have a contact form and we have facebook and twitter and instagram yeah in case you didn't hear that, that in the too. beginning <laughs> all right so after his dad's death he did um he was living back and forth and he struggled to get along with his stepdad and mom as he started entering his teens his stepdad thought that Corey was a manipulative smart aleck who was threatening his wife so he would come home and see Corey have her like pinned against the wall and he was here like an evil smile. This is what he's saying. The mm-hmm. stepdad said. Well, I don't know how much it's true. But did they get him help? I mean, I would think that if you accidentally he's shot your been, father, you would need some help. He's been in and out of social services his whole entire life. Okay. Yes. This is not, the, like, as a matter of fact, when, when I talk about the courtroom, the mm-hmm. trial, I'll get into a little bit of that. But okay. yes, I don't get into a whole lot, but this kid has been in and out of uh, social system. What do they call it? Job and family services or something like that. I'll get to it. Okay. All right. So when Corey turned 18 in 2011, he got in a huge fight with the hockeys. He left home after a big fight and it had something to do with Judy had bought him a car and then she took it away and sold it. Now I have to think as a mother, why would I take my keys away from my son? It wouldn't just be because I'm an evil bitch, but maybe because maybe my kid was drinking and driving or yeah. had done something super irresponsible. I mean, that's how we would react, mm-hmm. but I know. Anyway, whatever happened, he was really pissed off and he left. He ended up 
moving in with the family across the street. I'm going to call them the P family because I don't want to say their names, but he was close friends with the son. Now, while he was there, he was very, very emotional. He was very depressed, very emotional. And the family was really worried about him. I bet. And on one particular day, the father, Mr. P, came home and he found what he took to be a suicide note that was written by Corey. Oh, God. So he looked all over for this kid. He finally finds him and Corey is bawling and hysterical. Corey kept saying that he was going to go be with his dad. So he was, you know, he's just done with life. So Mr. P takes him to the hospital to get help and he ends up getting admitted and doctors ended up um, admitting him again for psychiatric treatment. All right. So while he's hospitalized, Corey underwent a full physical exam and was questioned extensively concerning his mental health. He reported to those doctors that his father had been accidentally shot. The report indicated that Corey reported to the doctors that his stepmother or adopted mother, Judy Hockey, had physically and mentally abused him. But he really wouldn't answer any of the questions directly. Uh, So the doctors determined that he was severely depressed, most likely because of the accidental shooting that he mentioned several times. So he's very, very upset about this. This is this has affected him greatly, obviously. His parents or his mom and stepdad probably only exasperated the that depression and just guilt and Yes, definitely trauma. Period. (laughs) Doctors found no physical evidence that Corey had suffered lifelong physical abuse, but they did find one scar above his penis. Now, I'm trying to think above his penis. Would that be? I don't know where that would be. Maybe. Like like your lower abdomen? Yes, that's that's what I'm thinking. They did find one scar there. And he told, Corey told doctors that his adopted mom, Judy Hockey, had threatened to turn him into a girl one time. She pressed a butter knife there on the skin above his penis. And she's like, oh, you know, you're just like a little girl. I'm going to turn you into one. And he said that she accidentally cut him there. The doctor said that there's no way to show that that was the cause of it. There was no evidence to that. But would a butter knife cut somebody there and leave a scar? I'm questioning. Well, sometimes butter knives have like those little. Yeah, the serrated. serrated. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean thinking in early march 2012 nine years after robert Brininger's accidental death mrs lauren beck who was once Corey's pe teacher when he was seven was at a ball game when Corey approached her and told her that he had been physically abused by judy hockey for most of his life so this is after he got out of the the hospital okay so he sees her at a ball game it's kind of a small town so i don't know what kind of ball game but he sees her there and he approaches her and he's like yeah I was abused by Judy Hockey. Can you help me? Now, most likely he went to her because she was aware of the physical abuse that he endured as a child. When Corey was in first grade, Mrs. Beck had concerns because Corey was wearing long sleeves and pants when it was hot. Now, I will have to say as somebody who has worked with young people that they will wear hoodies in 95 degree weather. Mm-hmm. And then complain about being and hot. And then complain about being hot, but won't take it off. So I... To me, that that brings into question whether or not, you know, that's at seven, maybe. When Corey was playing, she said he once pulled up his sleeves and she noticed that his arms were covered in bruises. Soon after that, he came to school with a black eye. On another occasion, he came to school with a head injury. He said that he fell and cracked open his head. Now, Mrs. Beck knew that he probably needed medical attention, but Corey told her that neither his dad nor his mom took him to the hospital. She had suspicions that Corey was living in an abusive situation, but she didn't report her suspicions to the police, Mm. to school guidance counselors, or to job and family services. So that's what they call that in Ohio. That's her duty. 
right? right? And this is this, this is that long ago. We're learning about this through testimony. Okay. So right. I have to question whether or not she truly believed that this. So we're going to learn later on cross okay. what she said. Okay. Okay. Neither did she speak with the parents. So she didn't call the parents. She didn't call Job and Family Services. And if this were to happen today, she would most likely be arrested because she's a mandatory reporter. Yes. He also drops another bombshell on poor old Mrs. Beck at that ball game. And I don't know how old she really is, but, right. you know, he told her that his father's death was not an accident. He told her that he intentionally killed his father because his adopted mother, Judith Hockey, had forced him to do so. Oh. Upon threat. If you don't kill your dad, you're going to get, you know, you're going to be hurt. That's what he told her. That poor child. He also said, now, See, now, no 10 year olds coming up with this scheme. Right? Yeah. So, what would you do if, if someone came up to you at a ball game and said that? What would you do? Um, like right then in that moment? Or, yeah. What would you do? I don't know. I mean, I would, I would like, what, wait, I would be like, wait, 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 stop, stop. I need you to tell me everything. And then we have to go to the police. Okay. So, she didn't do anything for a few days. Eventually, he called her. He's like, are you going to help me with this information? And finally, at that point, she ended up calling the police. Now, my question is, did she doubt him in some way? Is she like, I don't want to get involved in this. Is he telling me the truth? So I have to wonder, why didn't she do anything until he called her back and said, yeah. are you going to help me or not? Like, I wonder if there was like this, I don't want to say like he had a bad reputation, but if he had this reputation, I mean, I don't know any other thing word to say but a reputation of maybe being kind of erratic or um he's known as a liar or a storyteller right. yeah like or mm -hmm. is he you know oh he has emotional issues so is he just saying this you know all of this comes to mind because sometimes people say shit and you're like yeah right dude right you know i mean like consider the source so maybe she was what is known is that she told the police um, that hockey she told police that Corey told her hockey physically and emotionally abused him and forced him to shoot his father. And guess who led the investigation after she called Sergeant Vandemark. That's the same guy that was holding him on the porch right. after the shooting. OK, he he had originally believed Corey's story, even though the evidence did not match. So here we have this. So Vandermark is the one who gets the call when the teacher calls. He's the one that's assigned that case or he takes the call. I'm not sure oh, how it is, but I know right. that he led that investigation. Oh, so he's probably like, oh, hell no. Right. So on March 23rd, 2012, he calls Corey in and he interviews him again about the accidental shooting. And this time, Corey told Vandermark a different story than he told him nine, year, nine years earlier. Corey told Vandermark that he had intentionally shot his father because his adopted mom, Judy Hockey, had told him to. Corey told Vandermark that about a month before the shooting, his stepmother told him that Robert was dying because of a brain tumor. She told him that his dad was in a great deal of pain and wanted to die so that his family could get some money. Vandermark told Corey to start from the beginning. Corey said that when he got off the bus that day back in 2003, Hockey was waiting for him at the bus stop. And that is, that is, she was waiting at the bus stop and she picked up all the kids. All right? the kids. Okay. Yes. She told him, Corey said that she told him that the gun was in the laundry room and that he needed to shoot his father after she left. After giving him these instructions, she got into her vehicle and drove off with Emily and Garrett, which who were her younger children. When she left, Corey said he entered his house, went to the laundry room grabbed the gun, walked into the bedroom where his father slept, and with the gun only inches away from his dad's head, he pulled the trigger. Just like that. Just like that. 
Corey then dropped the gun and called 911 as he was told to do. Now, Corey had no explanation for how the gun pamphlets got placed on the bed. And Vandermark, after reviewing the evidence and Corey's revised version of the shooting, believed that Judy Hockey ordered Corey to kill his own dad so that she could gain financially. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I whenever the, these are kids, like I think of like our kids, you know, and I have kids closer to that age than you do. But I can't imagine one of my children, 10 years old, being like, okay, and just going and grabbing a gun and doing it. That's frightening. Like, he, he also testifies that she threatened him bodily harm if he didn't. And he was also concerned that his dad was sick and that his dad wanted it. These are things that he's saying. She must have really been like, what is it, grooming him for this. Like, this isn't something that he just was like, okay, I'm on board with after okay. a week. So I, this I is how think. I felt. Now, you're going to go through different emotions as okay. I go through. You're going to change your mind a few times as I go through. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Now, during the course of Vandermark's investigation, Vandermark learned that, that the very day after the shooting, less than 24 hours after the husband was shot, that the bereaved missus contacted Robert's place of work to ask about insurance benefits. And again, totaled around $350,000. That's now, not a red flag? Right. The benefits secretary remember this clearly because she was shocked that the lady hadn't even waited till her husband's body had gone cold. Right. Red flag. Right. Now, during his March 23rd, 2012 interview with Vandermark, Corey also reported that his adopted mother had abused him for years. Corey told him that hockey had beaten him his whole life. And he said that some of those beatings were so severe that he would lose consciousness. Jeez. Corey told him that hockey would beat him all over his body with a belt, including his genitals and that she burned his genitals with a lighter. Oh, but they but they, they said that um, he didn't have any scars like that, right? Right. Okay. So there weren't, you would think that there would be physical scars if you're getting burned and beaten. There would be trauma of some sort, maybe. I would think so. I mean, I've been burnt by an oven before, and it, like, doesn't always leave a scar. Corey also told Vandermark that Hockey had tried to kill him multiple times. Once, Corey said Hockey told him to climb up a scaffolding and let go so that he would fall. He said that he was taken to the hospital, but he was taken home before he was treated. Another time, um, it was a Halloween. Corey said that Hockey threw him in a pond while he was wearing his costume so that he would drown. Oh, and also, Corey told Vandermark she was attempting to poison her own, her new husband. Corey had seen her putting something in his drink on more than one occasion. Damn. So, of course, Vandermark orders them to go get tested or whatever, and it's shown that um, Hockey was not, th- there was nothing in his system. All right. Vandermark, of course, investigated all these. He found a lot of inconsistencies in Corey's story. First, like I said, Gary Hockey had no traces of poison in his system. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. Okay. Um, Also, when questioned, the Hockey's claim that Judy was just putting supplements in Gary's drink for his health, as well as ibuprofen for Gary's pain. So like an energy drink or something because he was tired. Okay. Yeah. He testifies later about this. So there is a little bit of question about what she was putting in there. Okay. Secondly, after examining Corey's pediatric medical records, it was determined that no type of abuse was ever documented, ever. At the time of the shooting, police had interacted with Corey on at least three occasions, but Corey never reported any abuse to them. Vandermark knew that Corey had fooled him nine years before because, you know, he didn't quite believe the story. So he's like, you know what, Corey has, I mean, he, he fooled, if this happened... And I've already been duped by him once. Right. He also knew that Corey was estranged from his family and he was still angry about the car getting sold. Um, and he blamed Hockey for everything. He told Vandermark that he wanted Hockey to pay for what she had done. 
So the case was reopened and a new investigation ensued. The investigation resulted in the death being ruled a homicide and charges were filed against Judith Hockey. As a result of his claims against Hockey, Corey was not being prosecuted for any offense related to the shooting of Robert. So he's free and clear. So she's brought charges against her because he he's talking okay just because he said so just because he said so yes okay and keep that in mind because the defense is going to say where's the evidence this is all just one kid's word on things yeah i mean on march 7 2013 the defiance county grand jury indicted hockey on one count of aggravated murder four counts of endangering a child and one count of insurance fraud she was arraigned on march 12 2013 and entered pleas of not guilty to all charges on July 30th, 2013, Hockey filed a motion to exclude the expert testimony of a Dr. Barbara Knox because her diagnosis was not supported scientifically or medically, and no ruling was made. Um, was no ruling was made on this motion? And keep this in mind because she does testify, and this opens the door for an appeal. Oh, so we've got okay. this doctor, and uh, I'm just going to mention that now. And okay, so I have a question about um, the charges. So. She's being, you know, they're charging her with aggravated murder, but how do they go ahead and charge her with insurance fraud if she hasn't been found guilty yet? Are they just lumping that in there? They're just lumping it all in there, I believe. Uh, A jury trial was held from October 28th, 2013 to November 8th, 2013, nearly 10 years to the day of the shooting. The prosecution called 25 witnesses to the stand to present their case, and the defense does a decent job of countering the prosecution. The details that came out in the trial were insane. So I want to give you some highlights, but I think this is a good time to stop and hear a word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends is a mobile puzzle game to turn to when you wanna just have fun and relax. You can play Best Fiends, a really cool puzzle game, right on your phone and you don't need an internet connection. As you play, you will advance through different levels solving challenging puzzles that actually engage your brain. This is a casual game that anyone can play and it's really, really fun. I just made it to level 120, and my adorably vivid characters have evolved throughout the game. Best Fiends is visually stimulating with bright colors and tons of cute characters, and Best Fiends never gets old because the game is updated monthly with new levels and events. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. Welcome back, everybody. So as I was saying before the break, I'm going to give you some highlights from the trial, but I'm going to condense everything for time's sake. So if you're interested in learning more, you can find the links in our show notes. All right. So the first responders were called to the stand one by one, and essentially they testify that the scene did not match Corey's story. But because of his emotional state, they figured he was just confused. One of the EMTs who took the stand was Michelle was Michelle Potter. And if you remember, she was the one that was in the ambulance with Corey. She stated that when Hockey came up to the ambulance, she was cold towards Corey, which she thought was odd because of the situation. On cross-examination, though, Michelle Potter admitted that she had known Hockey since high school and she didn't much care for her. She didn't have a good opinion of her is what she said. Mm. So I don't know if there was any bias there. Like she just right. thought... 
She just thought hockey's a bitch. And a lot of neighbors also said like she cussed, she yelled at the kids, she would cuss them out, she would cuss out the neighbors. So she wasn't a super friendly person if you crossed her. Well, you know some people like that. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know some people would say that maybe I'm like that sometimes. And no. Hey, okay. All right. Whatever the case, all of the EMTs stated that Corey never told them that he had been abused. They also testified that he had no bruising on him at all during that day. And also, uh, some of the neighbors testified. Some of them claimed that Corey was forced to do all the chores while the other kids played. And then others said that all the Brininger children worked in the yard. And Corey did play with the other kids in the neighborhood regularly. None of them reported seeing any physical abuse. Right. Just because she's a bitch doesn't mean that she's abusing her kids. Right. And maybe she's a strict mom. You know, you're not going to play until you do such and such. You need to shovel the the driveway. One neighbor said something about, you know, before school, he would have to uh, shovel the whole driveway. But I don't know. Is that, uh, I mean, that's a chore. Right. right, I mean. And who knows, a 10-year-old boy shoveling the whole driveway. Maybe yeah. he had to shovel a little, I don't know. Also, at least three teachers testified. One of those teachers was Corey's high school English teacher when he was a senior. And she said that he wrote an essay about something that had a profound effect on him. She testified that she took the paper to the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor said that she would take care of it. No mention at all of what was in the essay, but what I'm guessing is maybe he was writing about his father's death and the guilt that he felt or maybe wrote about physical, emotional abuse. I'm not sure what was in there, but it was enough for the teacher to take it to guidance. And this is really concerning because, I mean, while it was, what, eight years ago, it was just eight years ago. It was, so, yes, it was nine years. And actually the trial was about 10 years to the day. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm, right, right, I'm sorry. But those laws and those rules for teachers were in effect then. Yes. So if something like that, so I mean, really that comes down, the teacher did her job, but I mean, and I don't know what their laws are there for mandatory reporters, but I don't know, like here, you don't go to anybody else. Well, you all, have to all adults, directly. yes. And every single adult in the state of Florida is a mandatory yes, reporter. I did know that. Yes. yes. All right. Now there's also another teacher. Remember Mrs. Beck? She's the one that Corey ran into at the ball game. Mm hmm. She testified to seeing the bruises on Corey when he was a child, as well as the other details that she told the police. Remember, he wore long sleeves. He came in right. with a black eye, blah, blah, blah. Well, under cross, though, when the, defen- the, def- uh, the defense questioned her, she did admit that as Corey's physical education teacher, she never saw any indication that he was in pain while participating. She said that he was very athletic. He moved around easily. Uh, he never he never seemed like he was in any sort of pain or unable to participate in the activity. As a matter of fact, okay. he was right up in there. Right. Okay. Beck also testified that she was unaware that Corey had played sports such as soccer, baseball, and wrestling because Corey told her that hockey would never let him participate in sports. But on cross-examination, she realized that he had lied about that because he was, he did participate in soccer, baseball, and wrestling. And if that was for the school, that's easily enough and to prove. Right. Easy and who knows if it could have been like a rec, uh, you know, a, a rec program or something. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that was in school, but that's what Corey told her. Oh, yeah, she, she never let me participate in any sports or anything like that. And turns out that that was not true. Another teacher also testified, Corey's second grade teacher, 
She testified that in November of his second grade year, she recalled being a bit concerned about Corey because he had bruises on his face. Corey told her a believable explanation for the, bru the bruises, so she didn't make a formal report. She testified that she was also concerned about Corey because at a parent conference, Hawkey mentioned sending him to military school, and the teacher thought he was way too young for that. Mrs. Snyder also noted that Corey sometimes wore long sleeves and pants and it was too warm for them, but she didn't really take big notice about right. it. On cross-examination, she did testify that she only saw bruising on Corey that one time and she didn't make a formal report because he told her that he got the bruises from falling out of a tree. Well, that, that would happen. Yeah. And as a classroom teacher, she had many documented notes on Corey, but the majority of those concerned his classroom behavior and not any issues or concerns with abuse. So he was one of those kids that had behavioral issues and parent so. teacher con conferences all the time. And he did miss 15 days. So Corey had told them that his stepmom wouldn't let him go to school because of bruising. And, you know, he missed, she didn't want him to do well in school. So she would keep him out to do chores and whatnot. But he mm -hmm. only missed 15 days of that year. And that's average per student. So really? each student averages about 15 days absent per year. And your eyeballs are huge. So I'm guessing your kids didn't. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Lucas does because of wrestling. But those are like excused. Right. And so I'm not considering yeah. that. But like just my kids probably haven't been out sick 15 days their entire school. Well, that's good. That, and, I mean, and that's the average amount of absences per student. So one student right. might, might right. miss 30 and yeah. another kid might only miss zero. Oh, yeah. Right? So that's the average. So it wasn't, you know, a big red flag there. I mean, that's almost 10%. Yeah. Give or take. You're the math person here. No, no. no. Mm -hmm. All right. Then Sergeant Vandemart was called to the stand, and he pretty much testified to all the stuff that I already told you. Corey telling him that the shooting was an accident in 2003, and then in 2012, he changed his story, telling him that his stepmom ordered the killing because his dad was dying and he wanted the family to have money. Cor uh, Mr. Vandemark also testified that Corey told him about being physically abused for years. On cross-examination, Vandemark testified that he interviewed Corey a few years before the shooting. And remember I said that they already had a relationship? Well, apparently he got a call from Hawkey and uh, Robert Van um, Brininger, the dad, that Corey had made a claim against his paternal grandmother had sexually molested him somehow. During that interview, Vandemark said that Corey sat on Hawkey's lap and showed no indication of being afraid of her. So when they were being interviewed about that sexually sexual molestation, he was, you know, she was treating him as a mom treats a child. He, he was not, he, there was no indication of physical abuse. There was no indication that he was afraid of her. Okay. Did anything, do you know if anything came up? I don't know if anything ever came up with that or not, but I do know that social services would visit their house. So they were on that, you know, he was, there was therapy and I'm not sure yeah. what, if anything transpired with that. Okay. They All were right. on the radar. Vandemark also testified that on the day of the shooting, when they were by the ambulance, he overheard Hawkey asking Corey what happened and that Corey repeated the same story that he told Vandemark, you know, that it was an accident. Vandemark testified that when he observed Hawkey at the ambulance, she was trying to comfort Corey. He said that she began crying, but quickly tried to compose herself for Corey's benefit. So mm. she's trying not to lose it. Vandemark also testified that in 2000, Corey told a teacher that Robert had touched him in a sexual manner, manner so that his dad had touched him in a sexual manner. 
Hmm. So it sounds like someone else probably did. And if he's blaming different people, it's probably someone completely. Yeah. And I don't know the psychology behind that, but he is, he did accuse his dad. So at first it was a grandmother mm-hmm. and now it's the dad. Hmm. Now that was investigated again. Social service services is involved. Now I want to say that this was important for the defense because Hockey denies ordering Corey to kill her husband. Well, of course she does. Yeah. She's claiming that Corey's decision to kill his father was his own. The defense alleges that Corey wanted his dad dead because of the alleged sexual abuse and also because his father planned to send him to military school. So she's saying, I didn't have anything to do with this. He was pissed off because we were going to send him to military school. And he was also upset because of the sexual abuse. So why were they going to send him to military school, though? I guess because of his behavior. Remember, he was not behaving at school. His grades were not great. So he um, was not getting in trouble at school even right. before the dad right. died. Right. Okay. Both sides of the the prosecution and the defense, they both called medical professionals to the stand, mental health experts. The first was a psychologist named Ann Salter, and she testified that she interviewed Corey at the request of the prosecutor. So she's one of those people that gets paid to be uh, an expert for right. the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So she, she interviewed, um, I think, Corey, maybe a matter of four hours. I'm not sure how long she actually interviewed him but it was not that she did make a diagnosis of ptsd just by the information provided by Corey and other members of families that she interviewed i'd have ptsd too okay so by the way this well i'm going to go on to that now Corey also told her that he was isolated from family and friends regularly that he would have to stay home and the rest of his family went to fun places like sea world water parks camping and restaurants he told her that he was beaten severely because he won the student of the month award at school and his sister Emily did not. He claimed that he was forced to do Emily's homework or he'd be beaten. So he wasn't allowed to make better grades than her. This is what he's saying. This is what he told this Dr. Salter. All right. So these two younger kids, were they Robert and the moms? They were his half-siblings, but they were... Both Roberts. Yes. Okay. All right. They were all Roberts. Um, And my my other question that just pops up. So if he's not allowed to go with the rest of the family to fun places like SeaWorld, water parks, camps, and restaurants, does he stay home alone? Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, it seems like someone could testify to that, like a family member. Well, first of all, you know, this psychologist is testifying on what he told her, which is hearsay. Right. So that is going to be brought up in appeal. Okay. Well, I'm going to get into later because there's going to be another expert that comes and, you know, he takes what she testified, Dr. Salter testified to, and he kind of like turns it. Okay. All right. On cross-examination, Salter acknowledged that she did not treat people or provide therapy, and she didn't review any of his medical records to verify claims of physical abuse. So she just took his word for it and did not look at any of his medical records, did not look at any law enforcement records. So she's just taking him at his word. This is what this kid told me, so it's got to be true. So I mean, so this is like a quintessential hire we paid you so tell us what right. we want to hear right exactly so so she's getting paid for the prosecution now she does say that she made the diagnosis after interviewing Corey and his attorneys and she also admitted that she does not treat people whether she just simply makes her living by providing expert testimony so she's gonna interview him with a bias to, so I that mean, it looks good for the prosecution yes I mean it seems like that that's like her her gig really that you know not unethical yeah I mean it doesn't seem like 
she should be allowed to do that or you know if it's so many times if you're hired by the prosecution every single time and you agree with the prosecution every single time or vice versa because the defense they hire people too it seems like it's like how do you truly get an unbiased diagnosis in that type of situation right okay and we're going to come back to that oh, okay. all right the prosecution then called a dr barbara knox and we did talk about her earlier talked about her because it's the defense said can we you know that we want a motion to not allow her to testify Mm -hmm. and the judge just didn't say anything about it he didn't say no she can't testify he didn't say yes she can testify but she testified interesting yes so she is a board (laughs) (laughs) well she is a board certified child abuse pediatrician and she's the one that defense like i said tried to bar from testifying she testified that Corey was a victim of child torture which she described as an extreme form of child abuse that includes multiple types of physical and psychological abuse and neglect. This is not a medically recognized term. Child abuse is child abuse. There's no such thing as child torture as seen by the law. So she's making up her own term. Her term is not medically recognized and you can't just bring in an expert saying, oh yeah, this is child torture when there's no such medically recognized term. Right. Knox said that Corey told her Hockey forced him to eat his own shit as oh, well as dog shit. Mm. And that she would isolate him for hours. Also, the fact that she threatened to kill him if he didn't kill his dad is also a form of torture. On cross-examination, Knox acknowledged that there was no scientifically accepted definition of child torture. And that it was an idea that she had formulated and presented to the medical community as a theory to be adopted. They never adopted that theory. In 2019, she abruptly resigned as the head of the Child Protective Unit at the American Family Children's Hospital, Madison, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. She had been placed on administrative leave for allegedly intimidating and harassing her colleagues. And also the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism also uncovered evidence that she falsified records and misrepresented her own credentials in an effort to pin child abuse charges on a Wisconsin family. So this all calls into question her credibility. Golly. Yeah. So, so she's been discredited in her own field. She definitely doesn't need to be testifying. Nope. And why on earth would they ever call someone? Did they not do their research? Well, this was in, two, remember, the, the trial was in 2013. This, mm. she oh, was this discredited. Is more recently. Yes. Gotcha, this is gotcha, just gotcha. last year where she was discredited. So just interesting. Yeah. All right. So the defense. Because if she did it in 2019, she's been doing it. Right. Yeah. And that calls into, right. Yeah. She's been discredited. All right. The defense brought in its own expert child psychologist, a Dr. Philip Esplin. Esplin questioned the reliability of Corey's memory. He testified that memory is faulty for numerous reasons and that when you're dealing with a child, investigators should have re- heavily rely on documentation from doctors, hospitals, schools, law enforcement, etc., because these would more accurately indicate a child's history. So let's go see what are his child, what are his physical, what are his physicals say? Mm-hmm. All of his doctor's physicals said that he was healthy, you know, on the 50 percentile, 50th percentile growing up. These records should be the ones that we're looking at. Right. He, I mean, and I think that that's not always 100 percent probably the case but in most cases he said that there's a history of abuse someone along the way is going to see it document it right you know and that's the key it's like you have to document you know just like if you are a battered spouse and you kill your husband you can't just kill your husband without you know the documentation you can't kill your husband people okay no you know what i'm saying like in self-defense it's like well he's beating the shit out of me so i shot him well if there's no there's no record record or history of it it's just your word against a dead man. Right. 
So it's and that's basically what we have here, right? So so he's saying that a child's memories sometimes are faulty, and they're they're also definitely influenced by types of questioning by forensic psychologists. So he was saying that the questioning that Dr. Salter did kind of like put those memories or put words into his mouth on his testimony. That's what that's what he's saying could happen. He's not saying that it is. He's saying that that's what happens when you have children testifying. This is a theory. That their memories are, you know, that their their goal is to please whoever the interviewer, give the interviewer mm-hmm. what he or she thinks what they want. Now, he did check, he did go back and look at some of the documentation and he said that some of Corey's memories did not reflect what was documented. For example, remember when Corey said that he he fell, he fell off the scaffolding and they didn't let him go to the hot. They mm-hmm. didn't give him medical treatment. Well, that's not true. The hospital records show that he was fine and the family was supportive and cooperative. Esplin also pointed to Corey's statement to Salter that the beatings intensified after he won a student of the month award at school. But the records show that he did not ever win an award. His sister Emily did. Mm. Esplin also stated that Salter's diagnosis of PTSD was based on a subjective test, not an objective test that is medically recognized when screening for the disorder. So how she came across her PTSD was not like the normal way people screen that. According to Esplin, Corey's claim of severe, uh, severe abuse is not corroborated by the written records from doctors, teachers, and law enforcement. Not only that, but Corey's claims of child abuse are not supported by the fact that his former teachers never reported it. They were mandatory reporters. They never called. So this should support the fact that they just never believed that he was being abused. So is he like a pathological liar? Well, that's a good question. That's that's what I kept. So so at first I believed that. Yeah, of course, yeah. And now then I'm like, okay, so this is starting to switch. That's why this whole trial was very interesting. Yeah. But I'm not finished with Dr. Esplin. Oh, boy. Because he also noted that Corey's claims of abuse were strikingly similar to the storyline of A Child Called It. Oh, Did you read A Child Called It I by have- Dave Peltzer? I haven't, but I oh can see Lord, the book. Oh, my Lord, you need to read like, it. I can see yes. it in my mind. So this was, this, Dave Pelter's case was documented in the state of California, and, like, that changed all kinds of laws, child abuse laws in California, because teachers reported it, but teachers and all these other people reported this abuse, but no one did anything about it because there were not those laws. Wow. All right, so let me tell you that um, it is an autobiography written by Dave Pelter in which he describes the torture and abuse he suffered at the hands of his mother. Esplin noted several similarities between the child in the book and Corey's stories of abuse. So let me just tell you about a few of those. So did a 10-year-old read this book? Well, remember that he didn't come out with this until after he got into a fight when he was 18 years old. Gotcha. So this was hmm. this was um, eight years, eight or nine years after the fact that he started telling people about this abuse. Okay. So here we go. Both Pelzer and Corey stated that the daily abuse started at about age four and progressed in severity. Pelzer was forced to stand in one place for long periods of time, suffering severe physical abuse if he did not do so. And Corey told interviewers that hockey, hockey would require him to stay in forced positions for hours and he would be severely beaten if he moved. Pelzer wrote that he was forced to lie above flames, thereby getting burned and Corey claimed that hockey burned him with a flame from a lighter in the book Pelzer's mother made up incidents of misbehavior about the son to report to the father and Corey told interviewers that hockey created scenarios to make his father think he was a bad kid or crazy the victim in the book was only given his siblings leftovers to eat and Corey claimed that he usually only got to eat whatever was left over from Emily and Garrett the victim in the book claimed to have been accidentally stabbed in the kitchen in one interview Corey claimed to be an accidentally cut by hockey in the bathroom but in another 
he claimed it was in the kitchen. That was, remember, the cut about yeah. that. Right. The victim in the book claimed that he had to do chores all day, and Corey made the same claim. In the book, Peltzer claimed to have been forced to eat feces and rub it on his body. Corey made the same claim. Peltzer reported having to resort to eating scraps from the dog's bowl. Corey claimed to have eaten the scraps from the dog's bowl and the dog food. Both the victim in the book and Corey claimed to be isolated while the family ate meals. The victim in the book was made to sleep and use the bathroom in the garage, while Corey claimed to be made to sleep in the laundry room and use the bathroom there. The victim in the book reported losing consciousness from severe abuse and being revived by his mother only to have the abuse continue. And again, Corey claimed to have been choked or beaten until he passed out, and then she would revive him to continue the abuse. The victim in the book had no self-respect and was sometimes kept out of school and Corey reported the same. Damn. We're not finished. Oh my gosh, there's more? Oh yeah. There's Both kids. Both Peltzer and Corey claim to have been threatened with death by their mothers. In the book, Peltzer claims to have been starved for up to 10 days without food and Corey claimed to have been denied food or water for days at a time. Keep in mind that all of Peltzer's stuff has been substantiated with, right. with records. Yes. All right? Corey's have not. Correct. Corey was never like um, diagnosed with malnutrition or anything like that. It's amazing that that Peltzer guy is even alive. It really is. I'm th- I think he was almost on death's door when fi- finally somebody stepped in. And I can't, it's been so long since I've read that story, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's something you should read for okay. sure. Along with the other 900 books I bought this summer. Yeah. Um, Peltzer claimed to have been made to stay home during family trips. And like I said, Corey also claimed that Judith and Robert would take the other kids on trips and leave him home alone to do chores. So there's your answer to that. Both Corey and Peltzer claimed to have isolated for hours. Peltzer claimed to be forced into a cold bath for hours and that his Mm. head was forced underwater. Corey made the same claim. Peltzer and Corey both claimed that they were denied access to their fathers. Peltzer claimed that his mother made his life miserable and brainwashed his siblings. Corey stated that Hawkey made his life miserable and that he was afraid she had brainwashed Garrett into hating him. Both Peltzer and Corey claimed they were not allowed friends. In the book, Peltzer claimed his mother told him to jump off a boat so he would drown. And Corey claimed that he was thrown into a pond wearing his Halloween costume so that he would drown. Peltzer was not allowed to do well in school. And Corey told Salter that he was not allowed to get good grades. And that he was beaten when he was awarded student of the month. Both claimed to have been called names by their mothers and to re- have received few or no Christmas presents when growing up. Based on his review of the records, Esplin was not able to meet with Corey because for some reason they couldn't meet. Esplin concluded that Corey's life was chaotic and stressful, but his memories were faulty, either due to the stress of his trauma or due to his anger at his adopted mother. And he believes that Corey did read the book, A Child Called It. Well, it really does sound like he did. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, what would make him want to read that book? Did someone suggest it to him? Did he, was he researching child abuse? I think he was, because I think what he wanted was maybe he couldn't verbalize the type of abuse that he was having. Maybe she was, I do know that she was extremely controlling Mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe that he couldn't quite verbalize what was going on, but with these acts that he read from this other book oh well, i can say that and maybe somebody will listen right i mean maybe he was so neglected you know like emotionally that he like really believed that this is what happened it, to him like in his own mind it's definitely a possibility what what i will say is you know i truly believe that he did have a traumatic traumatic childhood do i believe that all these things that go along with a child called it happen i don't think i believe that i have reasonable doubt there i don't believe that at all the next person to testify on behalf of the defense was Corey's sister emily and they're not that they're not that far apart in ages i don't believe 
She stated that she never saw her mom abusing Corey. She said that on the day that Corey left home in 2012, Judy was upset because before he left, Corey told Judy, I'm going to pin this on you, you bitch. He said, I hate you. You're going to pay for this. Emily then suspected that Corey was going to blame Hockey for killing Robert. Emily also testified that on one instance, she saw Corey walking back to the house with Robert and he was bleeding near the waistband of his pants. So she's again bringing in, oh, it's a possibility Robert was sexually abusing and this would give him the anger to shoot his dad. Robert and Corey did not tell her what happened. So she, that's just speculation. Right. But Emily also testified that she had seen Corey with a copy of a child called It. Emily testified that on the day of the shooting, she did get off the bus with Corey and they were met by Hockey. Emily claimed that Hockey put her arms around both of them and they walked they talked on the way to the house and when they got to the house they had to go to her grandmother's house but Corey refused to go hockey then took emily and garrett and they left Corey behind with robert who was sleeping emily denied that hockey ever told Corey to kill robert while they were walking from the bus while at her grandmother's house hockey received a call that made her start crying emily denied that Corey was isolated from the family during her testimony the defense showed numerous videos and pictures depicting Corey as an equal member of the family so here they're bringing out pictures and videos from their childhood there was a video of christmas morning that showed Corey getting presents and hockey was sweeping the floor in the background emily denied that Corey did all the chores and she testified that she and Corey each did chores and they would switch from day to day as to who had to do what emily testified that she had a good relationship with Corey until he moved out. She claimed that there was a feud with the neighbors and the boys would knock her off her bike. So Corey would then knock them off their bikes in retaliation. And I think that that part was just brought in to show that, you know, Corey would take up for his little sister. Right. Also, he had a bike. He was also also out playing with everyone else. Proving that he had a... Had Proving a that he wasn't at home doing chores while... Right. You know, everybody else is playing. Emily then identified numerous pictures representative of her childhood with Corey. Corey riding his dirt bike, the two of them riding on a go-kart that Hockey had bought them, Corey and Garrett at the fair, all of them at Castaway Bay, at the zoo, playing at the reservoir. There were pictures at SeaWorld. There were pictures of herself and Corey playing dress up in her room. There were numerous pictures of Corey without shirt, so no bruising. Emily testified that at Christmas, Corey either got numerous presents like her and Garrett, or they got something big like a four-wheeler. She testified that pictures of Corey with many other extended family members um, at get-together show that he wasn't left at home while they went places. She identified one photo of Corey in a school play and one of him wearing short sleeves in a school photo. She also testified that Corey always ate with the family and that he ate not only his food but whatever she did not eat. Emily denied that Corey ate, slept, or used the bathroom in the laundry room. She testified that she and Corey went trick-or-treating together and identified numerous photos of Corey wearing shorts and no shirt and she also identified pictures of Corey eating and photos of Corey in his bedroom. According to Emily, their childhood was good and included them working and playing together. So this kind of goes together with maybe that's why the teacher didn't write off the bat want to believe him because if he's making up stories like this then you know he's making up these wild salacious stories in the classroom like oh guess what I did this weekend then it's something so bizarre or impossible that she probably maybe it was like okay well here he is again telling one of his stories right and and I do believe that children of abuse parent uh, with you know with childhoods like that They often exaggerate the truth Mm -hmm. and they make things up. All right. So upon cross-examination by the prosecution, Emily admitted that she had talked to her mom about her testimony, but she denied that she was only saying what Hockey told her to say. She did admit that um, she told the FBI that Corey was nothing but trouble because she was angry at him for just walking out of the family. 
And she admitted that she has an anger issue and will sometimes hit a table or wall because Corey said that Emily would hit him and beat him up and he wasn't allowed to hit back. But she said, oh yeah, he would hit me back. It was, you know, we would have our sibling disputes. And the last um, witness for the defense was Judy's husband, Gary. Gary testified that he married Hawkey in October 2010 and that Corey had lived with them for almost a year. During that time, he never saw Hawkey abuse Corey. He also testified that on one occasion, he came in the house to see Corey holding her against the wall with a like an evil smile on his face and when Corey saw him he stopped smiling and let her go hockey appeared upset and did not want to talk about it Corey walked into the living room and started watching television when gary questioned him about it he just got up and walked out gary testified that on one occasion hockey had put ibuprofen in his coffee and he didn't know it and on another occasion she had put an ener- energy drink in his coffee but he spit it out when he tasted it okay, so wait, 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 wait. right okay Mm-hmm. Two things. Right. Why would you put ibuprofen in your coffee? Why wouldn't you just say, here, honey, take some Advil. Exactly. Okay. And two, why would you put an energy drink in your coffee? That just sounds and disgusting. And then he says, it's the, so that's, that's reasonable doubt to me. Maybe it was poison. Who knows? Yeah. He did testify that the energy drink was added because he'd been tired. And he said that Hockey was a good mother, but was very outspoken and controlling. And she would tell the kids that she thought they were wrong. Um, I do that. Yep. <laughs> As all parents should. Right. Now, Gary denied that he, so he did increase his life insurance, but he denied that it was because she wanted him to. Instead, he said that he did it because he got increased insurance from 75000 to to 100000 at the same cost. He said that um, he said that Hockey had never tried to poison him. He had never been ill once since getting married and that he had not missed any work since he had been married. According to Gary, his relationship with Corey was distant and he found Corey to be kind of a smart ass. While Corey lived with him, Gary was concerned that Corey was using drugs because he frequently had glassy eyes. So what I'm guessing is maybe if he was using drugs, that was why they took the car away. Gary testified that Hockey had denied doing what Corey claimed and did not understand why he was making those claims. While living in the house with Corey, he saw no indication that Corey is being abused. On cross-examination, he testified that he had married Judy a few months after the death of his first wife, and he admitted that there was conflict between his children and Hockey, but denied that Hockey was trying to keep him away from his kids. So I don't really know the full, you know, I, I don't know what was going on and that why that question was important but gary blamed his first wife's family for the conflict because they were not happy that he was getting remarried so soon and he said that after he married hockey there was property damage around the house into his vehicle and he believed that Corey was the one who had done the damage for rebuttal the state called a teacher and a school librarian and both claimed that they never assigned a child child called it nor did either see emily or Corey reading the book the state also called Corey to the stand who ended up testifying about the abuses that i already told you about so he was like the last person to speak after the defense's witnesses so he's the last voice that the jury really heard before they closed the case he was as convincing as he was as a 10 year old right so the case rested the judge instructed the jury before sending them off to sort through the evidence so i just want to ask you you're a member of the jury let's just pretend you're a member of the jury Based on the evidence presented at trial, how would you find Judith Hockey on the charges of aggravated murder, insurance fraud, and the four counts of child endangerment? Would you find her guilty or not guilty? Well, with all that child call it stuff, probably not guilty. I mean, because there's no way, there's no proof. This is all hearsay. This is all him. This is all him yeah. telling other people who reported it, but there's no physical evidence of any of it. Yeah. I mean, there's it, no documentation. Nope. Any of it. 
not guilty. Well, the jury sided with Corey's second version of events, and they returned verdicts of guilty on all counts. Wow. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on the aggravated murder charge. On the four child endangerment charges, she was sentenced an additional 17 years, and for the insurance fraud, she got through three years. At her sentencing, the judge told her that her manipulation of Corey was evil beyond description. Before leaving the courtroom, she told the judge that Corey was a liar and she would be back. I didn't do any of this. I'll be back. So what are we missing here? Like for a non, for a guilty charge? I mean, like how did the jury jump to, I mean, were they just so captivated by Corey's I'm guessing that he was testimony? just that mesmerizing. He was that believable. That's scary. That is scary. It's almost if he was lying, it's sociopathic. But that I've read a little bit about sociopath, you know, sociopathy or whatever right. they call it. And that's brought about by childhood trauma. So as his maternal grandmother said, there's there's no idea what happened to him while he was with his mom at those young age, those young yep. eight, that young age. And then who knows what happened in before that. And then the sexual abuse, if that was true, you know, that could cause that trauma also. Yeah, he was definitely I mean, because you. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of this behavior with i mean not this particular behavior but things like with adopted kids who are like adopted like by both parents because especially at a later age because sometimes you don't know what that child went through and that stuff doesn't come out till later sometimes right and that's what it sounds like to me here and not only sociopathic but very pathological like i mean i think that there's a should be a diagnosis of pathological lying too because then they those people when they lie like that you know and they're diagnosed that that's they believe their lies and that's that yeah that that is frightening and you know i don't know what his diagnosis were i know that he was diagnosed as being severely depressed when he was hospitalized all right so what i do want to say is that hockey was back she did get her appeal three years later an ohio court of appeals granted her a retrial they found that the cook the court lower court allowed hearsay to be entered as evidence when it allowed the teacher, Lauren Beck, remember her from the baseball game or mm-hmm. the the ball game, when they allowed her to testify about her conversation with Corey when it, um, and when it allowed Dr. Salter to testify about what Corey told her. That's all hearsay. Now, the, the prosecution tried to say, oh, well, it was an excited utterance because you can allow that if it's excited utterance. But the court said this was nine years later. He had time to think about a story and build yeah, a story. Yeah. That's not an excited utterance. He had a time to read that book and reread it and reread it. And right. It also found that the lower court aired when it allowed Dr. Knox's testimony about char- child torture since the term is not accepted by the medical field. A new trial was planned for the spring of 2019. However, she ended up taking an offered plea to involuntary manslaughter and child endangerment charges. So an offered plea basically means that I'm not guilty, but the jury could find me guilty to the charges anyway. Mm -hmm. So she didn't want to take her chance. So she was sentenced to 10 years, including the time that she had already served. Now, I think if I had been on that jury, I probably would have found her not guilty. Like I said, too much reasonable doubt for me. I have to agree with Dr. Esplin that Corey had a traumatic, chaotic young life caused by the adults who raised him 
him, you know, and I said, I just don't understand why he would make this story up. Or like you said, maybe he believes it. What I do know is that Corey may not be able to break the cycle of violence and abuse because in 2017, when he was 24, he was arrested on charges of domestic violence, knowingly causing or attempting to cause physical harm to family or household member, endangering children, creating substantial risk to the health or safety and felonious assault weapon or ordinance. He was given probation and he underwent counseling for that. So hopefully he'll find peace in life from here on. Yes. yes. Wow. What a horrible story. Isn't it? And it's different from everything else that we've done before. And I'm surprised I have not heard of it. No. And I'm sure that there's a lot that I'm leaving out. I couldn't really find uh, much about Corey perspective he's kind of staying out of I guess the media spotlight after Dr. Phil and of course I couldn't figure out how to watch that episode without paying for it which I just didn't want to do so I don't want those stories to taint when I have my research anyway yeah yeah I don't blame you so I'm just curious of how Dr. Phil saw it and whether he you know was sympathetic to Corey or questionable was is the story questionable and the reasonable doubts Mm. it's just an interesting take on it just from what I've watched of Dr. Phil and have seen him, I bet he I bet he did not take Corey's side. I'm thinking he probably s- saw the same thing and was like, you know, you read this book. You know, I, right. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think he probably, he calls it like it is. So if any of you have seen that episode of Dr. Phil, please share with us what you know at a true crime podcast at gmail.com or reach out to us via social media like our sweet friend Rachel Wall did. Um, thanks, Rachel. We love you. That's it. Wow. Thank you again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So thank you so much for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are so essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at it wasn't yeah, at it wasn't me truecrime.com. <laughs> we are so grateful to spend our time together to share murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend it wasn't me to your true crime loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it, it wasn't, wasn't me. me.